The scary thing about it, Alex, is how quickly it all becomes normal, how quickly you accept that life in Afghanistan is about people shooting each other and about old landmines going off. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Tony Park has worked in the civilian sector as a journalist, public relations consultant, and a press secretary. He also served for 34 years in the Australian Army Reserve, including a deployment to Afghanistan. He's also a published author. This is our conversation. Tony Park, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Tell me about your childhood, Tony. <laughs> Let's always, go right back. I always say when, uh, if I'm writing a nonfiction book, if I say to someone, tell me about your childhood, and they say, I had a pretty normal childhood, and I say, well, leave it out. <laughs> no, I, I grew up in Campbelltown in the western suburbs of Sydney, not the not the flashiest part of Sydney, but a kind of semi-rural existence. And uh, we lived on the edge of what was the greater kind of Holdsworthy military base training area. So one of the things we used to do growing up was we always play soldiers in the bush. And we had a kind of, uh, as I said, a semi-idyllic, semi-rural <laughs> existence where we could run around the bush and play armies and carry on. And, and so I guess that was part of one of the reasons why as I got older, I decided I might like to join the army. What of your other interests as a child? Were you academically inclined, sporty? or The only thing I knew when I was growing up was the only thing in life I wanted to do was write a book. We were not very well off and both my parents were working and my mum's idea of childcare in those days was to make the kids go to the library in the afternoon after school until she finished work. So my brother and I spent most afternoons in the library. Reading was a very big part of growing up and uh, my favourite books growing up were Biggles books, very un-PC books these days, about First and Second World War fighter pilots. I not only wanted to write a book, I wanted to be Captain W.E. Johns, the author of the Biggles stories about these fighter pilots in exotic locations. But as I got older, I worked out I couldn't do maths and I couldn't do science. So I was never going to be able to join the Air Force and be a pilot because I couldn't do any of the prerequisite subjects. You'd find a more realistic path to pursue later on. Something groundbound. <laughs> Besides playing soldier and growing up in the shadow of Holsworthy Barracks, did you have any other military influences on you growing up? Family history, that kind of thing? I had uh, an uncle who I'm named after. My uncle Tony was a Royal Australian Air Force Airfield Defence Guard. Based uh, domestically? Or? Yeah, he was based in Australia. He actually ended up going to Vietnam in 1975 where he was providing security for those fantastic airlift operations that were happening to evacuate as many Vietnamese people out from the country to Australia as possible, in particular the baby lifts, which received quite a lot of coverage at the time. So I remember Uncle Tony going after that. And those transports that were leaving in the dying days of the Vietnam War, even though Australia was officially out of the war, though they were taking anti-aircraft fire, flying orphan babies out of Saigon. So Uncle Tony, who I was named after, was this literally larger-than-life character in my life. Unfortunately, he died. He was a warrant officer. He died on the parade ground 
barking orders at people at the age of 40 of a brain hemorrhage. His dad, Bill, my mum's uh, father, he had served with Services Reconnaissance uh, Department during the Second World War, Z Force. He was a Special Forces soldier who was parachuted behind enemy lines in Borneo. Interestingly enough, in true kind of Special Forces style, never spoke about anything that he did. We, everything we knew was secondhand about what my granddad Billy did during the war in Borneo. Training and operating with groups of Dayak headhunters fighting the Japanese and I learned more about what my grandfather did from his best mate at his funeral and from a subsequent exhibition at the Australian War Memorial about the relationship between those special forces guys and their headhunters than I ever did from him. The only time he ever spoke to me about what he did in the army is when I passed my army parachute course and he told me a bit about what it was like to parachute into Borneo. But other than that, he kept that part of his life very, very quiet. And I, I suspect to these days was probably suffering as a result of his experiences there. I, I learned from the War Memorial, one of his jobs in Borneo was the paymaster. His job was to pay gold to the Dayak warriors for every head they took. So it's probably a little wonder he didn't talk much about his military experiences. So yeah, I, I grew up with my uncle, who was this tall, strapping, professional military person, kind of showing the recruiting poster public face of Defence Force life, and a grandfather who was quite withdrawn and I think profoundly affected by his experiences in the military as well. I think that's quite common as well for someone of your grandfather's generation to just close up and not talk about mm -hmm. it and perhaps only share in the context of you've done some paratrooping. He can relate to you on that level. Something of benign as well too. Yeah, mm. yeah, that he could talk about, that he was comfortable talking about. Yeah, he never marched on Anzac Day, ever. And how much did you know your uncle before he passed away? My uncle passed away when I was about 14, I think. He was a very formative figure in my life. You know, whenever we would see him in like a, in true service style, he and his family would move around the country from base to base. I think he would probably paid a big part in me deciding to join the Defence Force. I wanted to model myself on him. But you don't join the Defence Force full-time initially. You go to university and get into journalism. Yeah, it's sort of a roundabout way. I joined the Army Reserve when I was 17 while I was at uni. I started school very early and so I ended up at university at 17, which was probably a bit too young. I was probably a bit immature. I did well at school. I was the ducks of my school. I hastened to add a fairly underperforming academic school <laughs> in Campbelltown, but I went to university probably not knowing what I wanted to do and I dropped out after my second year of not doing very well. And there was an advertisement in the newspaper for cadet journalists at the Sydney Morning Herald, which I applied for and didn't get. And then thought, what am I going to do? I didn't know what I was going to do. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from a local newspaper, the Glebe and Western Weekly, saying, would I like to come for an interview? And they had a position vacant as a journalist. And I said, well, yes, I'd love to. But I said, how did you find out about me? And the news editor said, we get first pick of all of the Herald's rejects. So <laughs> that's, that's how I got into journalism. Is that what you put on your business card later? Or? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because some of your famous initial bylines were about giant pumpkins and it was a dog bites dog world. Yeah, working on local papers is a fantastic grounding for any journalist or any writer because I, I, I did subsequently meet people who got cadetships on the daily newspapers. But in those suburban newspapers, the risk of sounding like an old person in the old days when they were probably a little better resource than they are today, you would get a job and you would be expected to hit the ground running. They were quite tough places to learn the business of writing and reporting. 
there were four journalists on the paper that I started on, and uh, I was pretty well expected to, if not contribute 25%, perhaps 20% of that newspaper every week. So you're exposed to police rounds and courts and local politics and just about everything you can think of. And yeah, sometimes you would do story on giant pumpkins and <laughs> stories on dogs, packs of killer dogs attacking other dogs because it was a slow news week. But it was a great place to learn how to write. It was very much kind of sink or swim. You had to start proving yourself very quickly as a writer, otherwise they would find someone else. My civilian career and my military careers had had a couple of crossover points, but for a long time I tried to keep them very separate. About the only thing of any merit I did at university was join the army and joined the Sydney University Regiment in the Army Reserve. Served for a couple of years as an infantryman. It helped me grow up a little bit. I had had a fairly sheltered childhood, you know, sitting in the library, <laughs> not doing much else. And so I was getting outdoors, I was being quite active and growing up quite quickly in the way that the Defence Force has of taking young people and shaping them and breaking them and rebuilding them. And re-breaking them and, and re-rebuilding re them. I decided I liked the Army. I liked the Army Reserve. I had thought about joining the army full time, but then when I got my job in journalism, I thought this is what I really want to do. So in my civilian career, I was working as a journalist and then later in public relations, I worked for the previous state government as a press secretary after I left the local papers and then went into private sector PR. And in my part-time job in the army, I went from the infantry to an air dispatch unit, 177 Air Dispatch Squadron, which I loved. I had a job there where I ended up getting promoted. I was promoted to corporal and served with a fantastic group of people. We had a lot of fun, you know, and we did a lot of really, not only training things, we, because of an air dispatcher's role, pushing stuff out of aeroplanes, we'd go and resupply the Antarctic base at Macquarie Island, and we would go up to the Northern Territory and supply regional force surveillance units, Norforce, with food and ammo when they were out on patrol. So there was much more of a feeling that rather than just training, you were doing a job, traveling a lot. And in my civilian life, I was, I was content to work behind a desk, you know, work as a journalist or in public relations. Were you pursuing that passion of writing you had from such a young age of wanting to write novels? It's one thing to say, I want to write a novel. It's another thing to say, well, I've got to make a living. You know? <laughs> and, and I met a girl when I got married and got a mortgage and all these things get in the way of the dream. But my day job was writing. But in the back of my mind was this desire to write a novel. And then things intersected again around 1996. I, I was lucky I got an attachment to a British Army, ter British Territorial Army unit, as they were known in the days, to an air dispatch unit in the UK when I was working in the UK as a journalist, which was again great. I was sort of riding this crest of a wave. I was working as a journalist in the UK and I was attached to the British Army. Did you go over single or married to the UK? Married. Yeah, my wife came over and she worked as well and I would do my weekends army work over there in the in the UK. And unfortunately, while I was away, my unit back in Australia was closed down due to budget cuts. So I came back and I had nowhere else to go. And I did one thing that I swore I would never do. I went to army public relations. I had always wanted to keep my civilian job and my military job separate, but about the only option left to me was to go to Army PR. Because you left your last full-time civvy job, which was a public relations civvy company in the late 90s. About the same time, actually, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. you find yourself just segueing into PR for the military. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And a lot of that work while I was still in the reserve. When I left work, I left full-time work to write a novel. But again, it's not that easy. My wife was supporting us, so I ended up doing more Army work. And so I was in my new role as an Army PR officer. I was doing more and more time 
And that would be Timor-focused at the time. Yeah, we. the first thing I was involved in was uh, drought relief operations in Papua New Guinea. I went to Papua New Guinea to deliver a media training course for the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, which is something they'd never had in the past. After that, I did go to Timor only briefly. I went as a media escort officer, so I took a TV crew up to Timor to show them around. So I got a glimpse of what we were up to. And it was a really interesting time to be in the army because I joined it in 1982. And most of my instructors were in Vietnam era. And the army was very, still very much in that mode of kind of doing what armies do. They tend to train to fight the last war they were in. And so we were very focused on jungle training and things like that. I went to Kanungra when I was an infantryman, did jungle warfare training. But no one was really doing much. Uh, It was interesting, we've earlier in the year had the 25th anniversary of the peacekeepers going to Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda in 1994 was the big show and Somalia was the big show. So those kind of peacekeeping or peacemaking operations were about the only thing we did between the end of the Vietnam War and Timor coming along. And so I don't think people, particularly people of my generation, we didn't join the army thinking we were necessarily going to ever do anything. (laughs) We were going to have a bit of fun on the weekends and train and, you know, enjoy the camaraderie and the life and, and no one really expected anything would happen. And, of course, once Timor came along from then on, the whole Australian Defence Force got very, very busy, virtually non-stop from that period on. Because I should also clarify that once you went to the PR front of the army, you commissioned, you went from corporal to captain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a corporal in air dispatch. And when I came home, as I got out and I was literally made a captain the next day with the stroke of a pen. So I cut my corporal stripes off and put my captain's pips on my shoulder. I'm sure there was a course or something you had to do. Eventually, yeah, I did. (laughs) my, My sort of training was sort of a lag behind. I did do an officer's course, which was also fun. The first job I had to do as an army PR officer, my old unit had merged with a regular army unit and they were parachuting and I'd done parachuting in the army. So I went out to cover this parachuting exercise and go for a jump myself. And one of the regular army officers who knew me or knew of me subsequently had me checked out. He started making inquiries because he thought that I was, I was this corporal who was there impersonating an officer. Little did he know how right he was because I really didn't have any idea what I was doing. Perhaps in spirit, just not technicality. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, it's a good thing about the Australian Defence Force. There's always great opportunities for advancement and people are given the opportunity to progress through the ranks if they want to. And so when I did my officer's course, I was what was known at the time as a direct entry officer or an SSO, a DO or an SSO, I think special service officer. So I was there with people who were brought into the reserve or the regular army by virtue of their professional qualification, PRB, one of those. So there were public relations officers, nurses, doctors, dentists, lawyers, padres. You get a bunch of people from that varied background together and say, we're going to teach you in two weeks how to be an officer. It's a, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> The actual role of you know, public relations in that defence context, that is you're educating people in the military how to speak in some kind of public format, whether it's to journalists, that kind of thing. And you are also, in a sense, policing or helping curate the military's image to the Australian public and helping you want to engage the Australian public with this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing this, this is our army. Yeah. What's the day-to-day job involved and then how that gets applied to specific operations or deployments? It's a very good question and it's something that's hard to answer because it's changed so much over the sort of 20 years or so that I was involved with it. And when I was active right from the start was in some ways probably the best of times because we had gone fairly quickly from the post-Vietnam War where there was a great level of distrust with the media. 
a lot of people in uniform blamed the media for the outcome of the Vietnam War or thought that we were sold out. You know, the media had been overtly critical of the Defence Force. Which led to the moratorium marches and the public outcry that... Exactly. That left and engendered a lot of distrust within uniform. Look, I mean, the media has, has a role definitely to play in the coverage of conflicts. And that's really interesting because in Vietnam, the media have free reign. That was the American policy. Journalists and photographers could go wherever they want, unfettered, uncontrolled, and cover the war as they saw fit with very little direction. And in Australia, I think the response was to shut it down. We won't engage with them. But then as we started getting involved in some of those peacekeeping operations, in Rwanda that I mentioned before and in Somalia, defence realised that perhaps in this type of an operation, we could use the media or we needed them to be on site. And so we would grip them up and we would sort of embrace them and look after them. That's what happened in Somalia. And in Rwanda, because of the nature of the mission there and the horrors that had happened after the genocide, a lot of what the world, a lot of what Australia saw, but a lot of what the world saw of parts of the aftermath of Rwanda came from Australian Army PR photographers. Corporal Robin White, who's a friend of mine, she took the film of the Cabello massacre, which is, you know, went worldwide. And so Army PR has this role, to get back to your question, to, yes, to promote the Australian Defence Force and to further its aims in terms of recruiting and maintaining good public relations and a good positive image of the Defence Force, to also developing a news gathering role where our Army PR officers, but also probably more importantly, our photographers and camera people were brought up to a level of skill as good as or better than civilian cameramen and civilian photographers, because they were often, as history would show, the only people there to take pictures and video that was subsequently used in the civilian media. So we developed this role of generating news and imagery at the same time trying to further defence's aims. And we got very good at that in Rwanda, Somalia, and we reached our zenith probably in 1999-2000 under Peter Cosgrove in Timor, where we had a general now who was not afraid of the media indeed who could see the benefits of fostering good relationships with the media and directed everyone underneath him to follow his example to get out there and engage with the media not to be scared of them sure things might not go completely right all the time so that filtered down it was a great exciting time to be there and as pr officers during that time we were pretty well left to our own devices saying get out there sell the message engage with the media get as much media coverage as you can cultivate your contacts and then it changed. It fell in a big screaming heap not long after that when the Children Overboard affair happened, uh, where through the release of imagery that was incorrectly described, it became a political issue about a refugee boat sinking and did people or didn't they throw children overboard on the boat. And so Defence did what a lot of large organisations do when things go wrong. They shut the doors and they centralised everything and said the days of you going out there and pushing the, your message and fostering good relationships with the media over. The government will control all the media and, and information that's released to the press from now on, and we haven't really recovered from that. So we've gone from being a very proactive PR organisation to a very reactive one, and that's categorised the later part of my time as a PR officer. In the middle, I went to Afghanistan. I was lucky in Afghanistan. I, I still had a bit of latitude to do what I wanted. And we'll come back to the evolution of Army PR over time. One other highlight I want to touch on before we get to Afghanistan is I believe there was a particular race with some New Zealand soldiers. <laughs> As I said, I had a fairly, probably a sheltered upbringing, so I tended to kind of 
my bad boy phase was probably, uh, I, was a, I was a late bloomer. So when I was a young soldier, an NCO, particularly during my time in the infantry and air dispatch, I did get up to a lot of no good, a, a lot of no good. <laughs> and it cost me, cost me a knee in one respect. I was on exercise in New Zealand and got involved in a piggyback race. The person I was carrying was a very large uh, Maori NCO and I, I fell over during the race. So. And you would have been rather doing the opposite of performance enhancement at the time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, I think the great thing about the Defence Force is the friends you make and the camaraderie and the good times you have. There are issues that come with this. The attitude towards alcohol playing up in those days was very lax. It was almost considered as part of what you did, you know. Then over time, as community standards changed and things like tolerance for alcohol and, and health issues and things changed over the years, we became very puritanical. And I think that also brings problems with it as well, because if you treat soldiers like children, sometimes they'll act like children. <laughs> Well, that's one comment that I've always heard without fail, no matter what their experience is like in any other respect, what other problems they do or don't have, the camaraderie is the thing absolutely every single veteran I've ever spoken with praises unilaterally. Yeah, and it, it's hard to describe, number one, without sounding cliched. Mateship, Australia. Mateship yeah. and, and all this. It's another thing to live it. It just becomes ingrained in you. And I think whether you've been a reservist or a regular, whether you're Army, Navy or Air Force, probably if there's one thing in life where you will differentiate yourself from other people around you. It is that, it's that feeling of camaraderie, but it's that simple thing of looking after each other. And when you see people not doing it, you know that the person responsible has most likely not been in a service background or in, a, in an environment of pressure or a team environment where looking after other people becomes so important. People think Defence Force is about charging machine gun nests and killing people and things like that, you know, blowing things up and whatever. I, I had to give a speech in South Africa at an Anzac Day ceremony in South Africa, actually, a few years ago, and I racked my mind about what to talk about. I read through the bios of the most recent Victorian Cross winners. As it turns out, I've met all of the living ones. And at that stage, there was even one that was, who's passed away who I've met. And when I went through what they had done, time and time again, their highest award in this country is more often than not awarded to someone who has helped someone else or done something to help someone else or save someone else rather than going killing lots of people. So let's talk about your 2002 deployment to Afghanistan. I'm going to preempt you because I'm sure you'll say you went as a PR officer, you weren't beyond the wire doing SAS patrols, that kind of thing. So I can already tell you're going to downplay your service. But just from a civilian point of view, I'm putting myself back in that era, you know, within a year of 9-11, yeah. that kind of heightened what is going on in the world. The world has changed and we still don't mm. quite know what it's changed into. Mm. Awareness, Australia's first like active combat deployments. I know we've mm. deployed to Timor, but this feels like a very different ballgame. Mm in terms of a combat role. So I can still imagine it's quite a tense, confronting thing to be going to the other side of the world, to the desert, in that environment. What was just the emotion of that like? Oh, absolutely. And for me, as a reservist, it was the last thing I expected. You know, I, I was asked to volunteer to go, and I was totally surprised, you know. And I still don't exactly know why I was picked. But to go there was a big deal. Because he said, like, when I left, it was, uh, I went from July 2002 to December 2002. So it was really only nine months after September 11. I remember the September 11 attacks as everybody who was alive, you know, and could talk remembers that time. And I remember thinking, this is going to change things for all of us, for everyone. And, and a lot of us were right. 
you know, because for me, I didn't expect to be in Afghanistan nine months later. Absolutely no way. It is something that if you're in the Defence Force, you have spent your life preparing for this moment. But there's nothing really that can compare you to going overseas into a conflict zone like that. Now, I had been to Timor, and I think we were kind of lucky in a way in the Australian Defence Forces that we had that large-scale operation not too long before. We, we were kind of, we had a good you know, run over there. It was a very important mission that we fulfilled, but it probably got us back into the mode about thinking about projecting force overseas and, and how we would do it. By no means was everything perfect, but to go was probably the biggest thing I've done in my life. And it's interesting because uh, being, you know, ostensibly a civilian, uh, one of the things I remember when I told friends and relatives and people I knew that I was going, most of them would say, why? <laughs> why are you doing this? You, What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? <laughs> you know? To his credit, the only person that said to me, good on you, I'm proud of you, is my stepfather, <laughs> Graham, who's an ex-commander. But people was like, it was so foreign to everyone and it was foreign to me. And yeah, and I think while you say we spend our lives preparing for it and training for it, it it's, it's a big shock to the system, certainly a huge shock to the system for my wife. And I don't think I can stress enough one of the things that I realised and have realised is the impact, the pressure on spouses and family members when someone does deploy is, is really, really a big thing. And the courage and the resilience they need to display is really tough, particularly for people like my wife, because increasingly we have more reservists deploying where quite often you're going as an attachment, as an extra person to go and do a particular job. So my wife didn't even have other spouses around her to, as a support network. She one day had a husband and the next day her husband was gone for six months, you know, an indeterminate period. It's quite a dinner table conversation too, honey. I've been asked to do this and I want to go. I'm just <laughs> no. trying to talk around to that way of thinking for yeah, you. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, certainly she didn't expect it and I didn't expect it. And then when you go there, and I remember I landed and um, got off the off the plane and I was with a bunch of other guys who were rotating in midway through another unit's tour. And so there was half a dozen of us. And as we were taken to the rough hewn wooden table, which was where we ate our meals under a camouflage net, it was all pretty rough and ready back then and we're sleeping in tents. A machine gun start, not that far away. I was with some, you know, very seasoned, you know, special forces soldiers who were going up there. But I think all of us were a little bit surprised about this. And then the guy who was giving us the briefing just said, oh, don't worry, that's the locals. And we're like, okay. And he says, oh, no, they're probably, it's probably just a neighborhood dispute over a goat or something like that. And that, that's, that, was, that became the normal. You know, it, it was just a, someone was shooting someone for some reason, sometime, most of the time. And then an explosion would go off and, oh, that's just, they're clearing some landmines. The scary thing about it, Alex, is how quickly it all becomes normal. How quickly you accept that life in Afghanistan is about people shooting each other and about old landmines going off. So these things that seem quite bizarre particularly when newcomers come along. You can see how you felt on that first day. I want to talk about some more Afghanistan experiences, but just on that specific point, then jump forward to when you're going home. How quickly does it take you to adjust to Australian Sydney normal then? I think whatever you do, and I was very much, you know, in my office most of the time on this big base at Bagram, this old Russian Air Force base. I was lucky I got out in the countryside a couple of times to have a bit of a look around. But I was in a fairly safe, secure environment. But you, you But there aren't machine guns going off outside. Yeah. We're in Sydney, right? CBD right now. There's no goats and machine yeah, gun sure. disputes. And... and and I think what you lose sight of, and what you, you you very quickly get used to a new type of normal. No matter what your job is and what you've done or how much action you've seen, it becomes difficult to readjust to the to the proper normal. 
and this is such a common thing that I've seen and written about in nonfiction books and novels that I've done, probably guilty of saying more than once that the, the military person, the soldier has a particular nightmare and it's forgetting your weapon, like putting your rifle or your pistol down and not and not picking it up. It's again. the army version of going stage and you're not wearing your pants. Not wearing your pants, yeah. The dream where you go to work with no clothes on, yeah. And so you find yourself continually reaching for your weapon when you're at home. That's the one thing I remember most often. And just the business of being able to get up whenever you want to and go to the refrigerator and get some food whenever you feel like or to have a drink if you feel like it. It takes a while to get used to it. 19 years on, I still have dreams, nightmares where I've lost my rifle. (laughs) Also, you've spent time in a pressure cooker environment, whatever you do, living cheek by jowl with people, two class sometimes, making friendships with people who you would never otherwise have met. And these are those types of classic friendships where you can see each other every 10 years and pick up the conversation where you were. But it's in a pressure cooker environment. And then you start wondering, what are they doing? Are they okay? And then as time goes on, you find yourself thinking, even though you're back home, what about everybody that's still there? And what are they going through? And this is something that I went through in the years after I came back that was very strong, was very profound in my life, this feeling that I had had a good tour. No Australians were killed or injured while I was there. We were lucky. We were doing very well in the country at the time. The whole effort was doing well. And then as things changed over the years and we went back to Afghanistan, I started feeling terribly guilty that I was at home, that I wasn't back there doing more or that I hadn't done more. You know what I mean? And and so it's like, even once you're home, and bear in mind, nothing happened to me, and I, I don't suffer from PTSD or anything like that, but you can see how serious these conditions are, where if you take someone like me, who had a tour where nothing went wrong, it was the crowning experience of my military career, and yet the overwhelming feeling you have after that is, I should be doing more, or I'm really worried about the people that are still over there. It, it becomes so ingrained in you that you can't let it go. You and can't from, dial it back. You can't dial it back. And for many people, that becomes a really, really serious problem because if you overlay that with trauma and having seen things happen to your friends and having gone through terrible things, can almost feel like there's no escape from it. And that's the problem that so many veterans face today. So even when nothing happens to you and it can still profoundly affect you for the rest of your life, imagine what it's like if you've gone through trauma as well as that. It is a pressure cooker environment. Well, you say nothing happened to you in that pressure cooker environment, but I want to know what was your day-to-day on the ground role and what were some of the things you might have been witness to in terms of other actions going on or just how other soldiers were dealing with that pressure cooker? Oh, man. I mean, it was like being on the set of this huge production Number one, to be away with the American military machine is such an eye-opener. I was at Bagram. There was something like 5,000, 5,000 or 6,000 people there. You know, there were soldiers from men and women from around the world as part of the Coalition of the Willing. There were people from Norway and Latvia and the UAE and all, all sorts of different places there. And, and of course, the Americans were the majority. There were more jet aircraft and helicopters on that one base in Afghanistan than there were in the entire Australian Defence Force at, at the time. You know? And a lot of those were American National Guard units, reservists like me. But there is this massive war machine that on one hand has more stuff than you can possibly imagine. And on the other hand, has soldiers in inferior cold weather clothing and trucks that are 30 or 40 years old that date back to the Vietnam War. And soldiers, reservists like me, who hadn't fired their rifle for a year because they hadn't had training on the rifle ranges and stuff like that. And very poor communications home. They would get like one phone call home a week. Whereas in the Australian Defence Force, we had our own communications network where we had unparalleled access to home. And so you start to realise that while we may not be the biggest military in the world, 
perhaps we take for granted the fact that we are very well trained, even reservists like me, and very well equipped and very well looked after and well led and well fed because American food was terrible. You know? So it's an eye opener on many levels. And there was other stuff happening there. One of the things that I do remember is, it's a statistic that I'm sure has been borne out in every conflict, is the number of people that die in accidents in a war zone. By far and away, the majority of the coalition casualties that were there, and they were quite significant, were accidents. Flying accidents in particular. It's a very tough environment for helicopters and aircraft. Terrible thing happened around the time I left, or just before I left, a large part of the Spanish contingent that was there flew back to Spain in a chartered Russian ex-military transport aircraft, and they flew into a mountain somewhere in Eastern Europe, and they all died, 76 of them on board, who'd survived their tour of duty, and they were all killed. Seven Germans were killed in a helicopter accident. So these are the things you don't read about, you don't hear about. You know, this massive operation that is a big thing with many moving parts and very dangerous. It was interesting looking at the country and the sort of military operations that were happening at the time. The coalition had done so much good in terms of bringing peace to the country. And earlier on, before I got there in those big battles, uh, Operation Anaconda up in the Tora Bora Mountains, really knocking the Taliban and Al-Qaeda for six. They were spent. They were gone. They had all run off to Pakistan across the border. And the country was largely at peace, which is why we left at the end of 2002. Everyone came home. And then, unfortunately, we got dragged back into Afghanistan a few years later because the Taliban and Al-Qaeda simply filtered back into the country from Pakistan. So well, power vacuum was left. When you look at that, I think from my point of view, from a public relations officer's view, where you were kind of getting oversight of the politics in America and back home in Australia, this need to bring everybody home, which was a good thing. And at the same time, this need to carry on the fight, to go to Iraq. We're on a roll. Let's kick a bit more ass and, and go and find another But on war. to the next ass to kick. On this to ass has been kicked. This ass has been kicked and we'll go to Iraq. And to extent we were willing partners in all of that. You start to step back and look at the whole strategy and come very quickly to the conclusion that there isn't much of a strategy, you know, going into Afghanistan as, as history has shown there wasn't in Iraq, you know. It's all very well to go in there and kick some ass and win the war. But if you don't have a plan in place to then rebuild, this is where the problem is comes from that we're still living with today. And I think in some respects as a PR man, you're looking across all of those things, the military, the troops on the ground, the senior command, the politicians back home, what the Americans, what our British and American coalition partners are doing and what the UN's doing in all of this. And you very quickly work out that it's quite scary, that perhaps there isn't a grand plan. When you left Afghanistan, did you leave with a feeling of accomplishment that you had done good work there and it was going to last? Or did you have that foresight to go, I'm not sure what's going to happen here? Or were you not thinking that bigger scale at the time and this is more come later with hindsight? I dug out an old notebook. I didn't really keep a diary because I, I, think I was too busy. You talk about day-to-day -day work. Day-to-day -day work was quite mundane. I would monitor the media, see what they were saying, the bad guys were saying, see what we were saying, brief our troops, prepare my commanders if they had to do media interviews, deal with media requests. But you, you do look at what's going on. The feeling when I left was that our guys were running out of work to do, which was a good thing. Okay, There were no bad guys That's left. a sign of success. Absolutely. That was a sign of success. There were schools opening. There was a great need for aid and development, which kind of came later on, but should have come earlier. It was a little bit too little too late later on. If we had put a massive aid and reconstruction effort in at the end of 2002, the country would have been vastly different than what it is today. I firmly believe that. But as to my personal feelings, I pulled out this old notebook where I had made a note about my last day in Afghanistan. And it was really interesting because I kind of blocked this out of my memory. But I, I think I wrote in there that 
I have never felt so bereft of emotion in my life. You know, I, I do not leave with any sense of satisfaction or joy or anything. You know, I'm just going from one country staging out to another country in the Middle East and I just don't care. All I want to do is go home. I had just been there for six months and I was one of the longest serving people there at the time. A lot of the tours were shorter and I was just completely over this whole <laughs> endeavour and just wanted to go home. In hindsight, I can look back at what was happening and I have these strong views that we did miss a golden opportunity. But if you had said to me, stay for another three months and be the PR officer for a massive reconstruction effort, I would have said, I'm going home. <laughs> Sorry. But that's interesting. You have that level of emotional disengagement, yet you now look back and also say it was the crown of your military service. It's funny, yeah, it is. And I had kind of forgotten that. You know, I suppose where we were all guilty of rewriting our experiences or romanticising them or something. Or just like recontextualising. Yeah. It was the middle of winter, you know, it was 45 degrees when I arrived there in July and we had guys out on observation posts that were literally cooking, that were baking, sitting up on top of mountains and stuff. And when we left, it was minus eight and we'd had a bit of snow and we were breaking down the camp that we had been in since we were all going home. And it was just, it was boring and monotonous and everybody was just well and truly over it and it's interesting i've been reading another book i've been working on just reading about people's feelings on leaving timor it's not kind of you know fist bumping and high-fiving everybody and mission accomplished job well done and perhaps it's about the australian character as well because there is a difference there is the other thing i noticed is in my day-to-day -day work was that if you look at our american colleagues, we're probably more similar to the British than the American as a defence force, whereas in the in the Australian defence force, the profession of arms is a job, you know, it's a calling, yes, you know, and it's different to other jobs in that respect, as it possibly is more of a calling. But at the end of the day, you're there to do a job, you do the job to the best of your ability. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support and help. And so my motivator, if you like, was an element of fear that I wouldn't be up to the job and I wouldn't be able to, to do the job I was sent to do. And I think you would probably find most people would say a similar thing. That's what motivates us. But our American partners, and I'm not, not saying this is a criticism, they're wired or motivated completely different. They are there to defend God and country. They are there, in some cases, to seek revenge, but this is a very emotional commitment and an emotional motivation that they nurture. They are proud of this, wearing their heart on their uniform sleeve and saying, I am here to atone for September, to, to seek retribution for September 11, or to put it positively, to defend my country and my beliefs and this kind of thing. We don't think like that. It doesn't mean that it makes them better or worse than us, but the ADF has a particular mindset and it's very different to that. And I think it's a healthy thing. It's a healthy mindset that we go in. But it does mean that after doing the same job for six months, whether you're in East Timor or Afghanistan or whatever, pretty well you just want to go home. <laughs> you know, job's done, it's time to go home. And it's just such an overwhelming relief to be home. I'm sure everyone would have the same experience. And then you sit down and you're thinking, but what's Mal up to? You know, what's Scotty up to and what are they, are they okay? And then who's going to be going back? Who's going to Iraq? There was talk when I was there of us staying because everyone knew Iraq was coming and there was kind of a, a push that, well, why don't we just wait out somewhere else in another Middle Eastern country and just see what happens? And then I started thinking, no, but I just wanted to go home. And then I start thinking, well, maybe that's the wrong thing. So yeah, almost as soon as the relief, the initial relief is over, is those thoughts of what else could I do? What else could I have done? Right or wrong, that is what the ADF engenders in people. How else can I serve? What else can I do to help my mate or these people or do the job? 
not because we're pumped up and, and full of patriotic fervor, but because what is engendered in us is the need to look after our mates and to function as part of the team by not just thinking of myself. When it's taken away from you, it can be quite difficult. Did you have an opportunity later on to deploy again? I could have. I could have. You know I'm going to ask next then. <laughs> Why didn't I? Yes. <laughs> yeah. After I went and came back, I think it's fair to say that a few of my peers probably thought, well, how come he got to go? And then when it all started up again in Iraq and then subsequently in Afghanistan, all of my peers went. Everybody I know went to Afghanistan or Iraq or both. And some did multiple tours. I kind of went back to my life of writing books. Well, I got published while I was in Afghanistan. I got told that I had a publishing contract when I was in Afghanistan, which was a pivotal point in my life. So I put my effort into my new career of writing books, which involved me traveling to Africa every year and spending six months in Africa. I didn't really have time for the army. But when I came back to Australia, I was pumped up. I, I had had this amazing tour of Afghanistan. I was given a good job in the army reserve, working in PR for headquarters special operations. And I was so keen, it, it had kind of reinvigorated my, I don't know if it's love for the army, but my dedication and professionalism. And then... It all came crashing down because I worked out that while going away to Afghanistan had been the biggest thing in my life, it was not the biggest thing in anybody else's life. And it didn't mean anything. And the way we ran PR in Australia, where the government, and I will say the government because it didn't matter who was in power, whether it was the ALP or the Liberal National Party, had fallen into this mould where defence public relations and what should have been strategic communications, that is what should have been using the media to project force or to defeat the bad guys and the enemy propaganda and to counter al-Qaeda's mastery of PR was not being done because it had been politicised and it was becoming tightly controlled by whoever was the defence minister or prime minister of the day. Defence PR became their own personal little photo opportunity machine when the leader or the minister would go and visit Iraq or Afghanistan and have their picture taken. They would be the sole commentators on what was happening. So any ability of the troops on the ground or the commanders on the ground to talk about the tactical or the strategic situation was taken away from them. So I was brought back to sit in this job where I did nothing. I twiddled my fingers and my thumbs when I was doing my reserve service and wasn't allowed to talk to the media or say anything. So it was incredibly disillusioning. So to answer your question, I didn't go back because I didn't stick my hand up. And I didn't stick my hand up because I thought there's no point in me going because the succession of my friends went as public affairs officers and found they had very little to do because it was all being run by the government. It left a lot of people quite bitter. So I had this terrible feeling of not having done enough, but knowing that if I had gone, I probably would have gone crazy. Well, you do eventually finish up in the reserves as, in your own words, a rather old major. A rather old major. Burned out old major. That was me. <laughs> and you have been part of the army PR machine from the start of the century, and you watched it evolve over time in the ways you've described, and mm. now you are effectively an outsider. Mm. Looking at it from that previous insider perspective to today, what do you think the ADF does right and wrong in regards to its public relations and communications efforts? Has it just surrendered to Canberra pressure too much, in your opinion, or is there more to it? To answer the second part of your question first, yes. We, it's, I don't know whether we've surrendered or it's been taken off us. We have no shortage of excellent operators, some of the world's best photographers and videographers. I know some wonderful photographers, videographers, and public relations people in the military. I, I, one of my colleagues on this podcast is a public affairs officer. I know she does fantastic work, but this is more of this 
big picture issue where you're citing almost government interference. Yeah, definitely. And so what went wrong during those, the longest war in our history, you know, during Afghanistan and during Iraq, is that the public affairs officers were not given the chance to do their job, basically. They became electronic paper shufflers. Peter Crossgrave used to say, we're a small force that punches above its weight. And it's so true. And it is so true. There's a risk of believing your own propaganda, but it's not until you see it. I saw a general, commanding general in Afghanistan, who in his departing speech, I wouldn't have wanted to be some of his underlings because he was saying that when he knew we were leaving, he was saying that I would rather have one squadron of Australian Special Air Service Regiment troops than two battalions of American troops with me. And that's, you know, there's a fair bit of looking at your shoes amongst the American ranks at that time. But we were incredibly valued in what we do, and we are an incredibly professional defence force. But because of this need by politicians to control the message, and particularly to control the defence message and to centralise everything in Canberra, we've lost the ability to do our jobs. That's unfortunate because it's happened at a time when the Americans and the British and no doubt other militaries during the war in Afghanistan we're getting better at doing the opposite. We're embracing the concept of strategic communications, which is where you you use the media, not just to encourage recruitment and to make sure you have a nice corporate image back home. You fight what the Americans call the battle for the cognitive space, because of course, you know, you can't defeat terrorism without stopping people from joining a terrorist cause. And one of the way they recruit people is by using the media new media, social media, the digital media, incredibly effectively. And we still don't know how to do that. While our coalition partners were working very hard at learning how to do that, how to use the media to influence the local population in Afghanistan. While we were organising photographers to take pictures of the defence minister or the prime minister shaking hands with the troops, that's as far as we got. It's not the fault of the defence force and it's not the fault of anybody in the defence force. It is politicians doing what politicians do increasingly and that is centralised control of the media and the messaging. That may work well if you're running an election campaign. doesn't work in a war. You mentioned earlier about going to Africa a lot for your writing and we'll come back to your writing career in a moment, but I'd like to actually focus on how you sort of went from one war to another. You went from the war on terror and now you have seen much more actually over the years of the war on poaching. Yeah, it's really interesting because my books are all set in Southern Africa and at the moment in South Africa in particular, there's a big problem with rhino poaching. To kill a rhino, you need heavy caliber weapons and uh, the reason there's such a big problem in South Africa is because that's where the rhinos are. My wife and I bought a house in South Africa about seven years ago on the edge of the Kruger National Park, which is home to the largest remaining population of rhinos. So we are living on the edge of a war zone. And to put it in perspective, in the last 10 years, it's no great measure or anything worthwhile, I should point out, talk about casualties on body count. But to put this this conflict into perspective, in about the last eight to 10 years, there have been about 500 poachers killed in armed contacts by South African national parks, police and national parks rangers who are all armed fighting them, to the loss of, of, I think, two rangers to enemy fire in that time. But this is a shooting war that's going on in our backyard that involves uh, high-tech electronic surveillance, helicopters, automatic weapons, and heavily armed opponents on both sides. For people who are interested in military history, I, I, I was set to an interesting presentation by a guy who's in charge of the South African National Park's canine units. Dogs are proving, as they always do in any war, to be an invaluable assistant to humans in the fight as they did in Afghanistan detecting bombs and as they did in Vietnam detecting insurgents and tunnels and booby traps. Dogs are, are proving a game changer in the fight against poaching. 
the number of contacts of firefights every year in the war on poaching has surpassed the busiest period of South Africa's bush war in southwest Africa, modern-day Namibia. So it's actually a busier war than the last war they were involved in back in the apartheid era. I have become a spectator to that through the books, and then I got involved with a UK-based charity called Veterans for Wildlife which is set up by some ex-South Africans who had served in the British Army in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. And what Veterans for Wildlife does is pairs veterans of the recent military conflicts in the Middle East with anti-poaching units and programs in South Africa. And I got involved as their PR officer and have actually volunteered on one of their programs. And it's turned out to be a very valuable thing for a number of veterans and myself included, because whereas I just said I'd had left the Australian army and the PR role very disillusioned with our lack of ability to do our job, to now getting into a situation where I'm publicising the work that these veterans are doing. And this is very important work because they train anti-poaching units Sometimes in, in military skills, you know, in fire and movement and shooting, but more often than not in leadership and advanced first aid, communications, things that they don't get training of normally, and help in monitoring and surveillance of, of the Kruger Park. And it's really rewarding to put the skills that you've used to good use and to be able to see a, a positive outcome. So it helps the people we're training and working with and the animals, it helps protect the rhinos, but also just as importantly, the veterans find a, a renewed sense of purpose. And I know for myself that it's true, that I can now go from wanting to not have anything to do with public relations or particularly military public relations to now doing stories about soldiers, men and women who are now involved in the fight against poaching doing a good job and it's well received by the media and we need the media to support our cause. Everyone benefits and, it, and it's incredibly uplifting and I think any programs that can help veterans recapture that sense of purpose are incredibly valuable, you know, whether it's through employment or through NGOs. Absolutely. And I know just from watching your social media how much you're on the front line in terms of we see lots of wonderful wildlife you're engaging with all the time or just hyenas or rhinos or elephants or lions, giraffes, giraffes and lions, everything, everything yeah. all comes through your backyard sometimes. All my neighbours, yes. yes. Indeed, yeah. But does that actually mean sometimes you're actually also close to the front line of this kind of conflict as well? Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, because we live on the edge of the Kruger Park and we're in the south of the Kruger Park where that happens to be geographically where the largest rhino population is. So poachers are most active at full moon. That's when they can walk around the bush and they have enough ambient light at night time to track their rhinos. I say it's not unusual. It would be unusual for us not to hear helicopters overhead in the middle of the night. And we often hear gunfire as well, too, as the security forces are engaging the poachers. Because while a lot of rhinos are killed, the number is decreasing. They are, the, the security forces are becoming more and more effective. Many, many more poaching incursions into the national parks are stopped than those that actually get through. So the, the scale of the problem is probably bigger than what most people see or what the statistics indicate because the vast majority of poachers, particularly in the area that we cover with an electronic surveillance system, which I've worked on, the vast majority of poachers are stopped before they get anywhere near Ryder and they are either arrested or sometimes they're killed. You spoke about in Afghanistan quickly adjusting to a new normal so how long did it take you to adjust to that being a new normal and your wife as well? Yeah, a little bit freaky. <laughs> freaky when you're in your new house and you hear the chopper going off and there's a gunshot somewhere. I should add the gunfire is much less these days as time goes on. But uh, you are living in an environment that becomes normal 
to you, but it'd be very foreign for Australians. I mean, our rangers conduct shooting practice often near our house, and we have to work out, is that somebody practicing or is that somebody shooting someone? If the chopper's flying low overhead, it's not on a joy flight. Unfortunately, it becomes part of the new normal as well, too. It's exciting. But you know. the other is, you know, you know you are going to a war zone, you're in a military uniform, you have a rifle on, or a pistol on your hip or whatever yeah. at all times sort of thing. This is you and your wife have bought a house and you're making tea in the morning or you're focusing on your novel or pick a mundane domestic chore you're doing. Watching telly at night, the chopper's yeah, flying exactly. over. <laughs> you're doing Netflix and suddenly it's not yeah. surround sound, yeah. it's outside gunfire. I think it's one of the interesting things that makes it, uh, Africa attractive to be, you know, sort of semi-serious about it is there is a bit of an edge there, whether it's the fact that we don't go outside. Well, we don't go outside at night because then we've got a leopard that lives around our house, you know, and we've got hyenas wandering around the barbie and things like that. So you have to adjust your thought pattern very quickly. And the fact that, that you know there are bad guys out there trying to get rhinos, everybody in the community is kind of watchful for that kind of thing. It's like a big neighbourhood watch effort as well, too. Our security guys that work, we, we live on a little game reserve on the edge of the Kruger Park, and our security guys have been responsible for catching rhino poachers who've been sneaking past our fence. And so everybody is kind of hyper-vigilant, which is good because it's a, it's a community responsibility to protect the wildlife as Your baseline well. vigilance is fantastic. Right? Exactly, yeah. When you're writing, it's fantastic because you've got no you shortage of stuff to yeah, write about. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've, got, we've got attack dogs patrolling down the road all the time, you know. And so you're a witness to this effort to protect wildlife. And that becomes your your normal because I think what happens when people go on safari, the first thing that happens is they're bowled away by the majesty of things like rhinos and elephants and lions and whatever. And the next thing they learn is they're on, under threat. And that's a good thing, right? You don't want to go on safari and think everything is perfect. You want to go on safari and think these things are worth protecting. And one of the strongest messages that we try to get across, and particularly even through the charity, the Veterans for Wildlife charity is now supporting a local community uh, program that's aimed at alleviating poverty and building resilience in the communities on the edge of the Kruger Park, some of which are quite poor, is giving local people, and in particular local kids, that appreciation for wildlife. Because these are people who are so impoverished that their children may never get to see animals in the national park that they live next door to unless someone comes and pays their entry fee to go into the national park. We kind of don't mind living in a conflict zone because we know we're all part of this fight in some way or another to protect wildlife. A lot of friends of ours in South Africa are honorary rangers, which is like army reserve rangers. So they're part, they spend their weekends working as rangers in the park. So there's this kind of community feeling of working together to protect wildlife and we're trying to spread that message wider. It is confronting when people from Australia come along and learn this is what's going on, but they need to learn that, and it makes it exciting. And then you get to spend half the year relaxing back in Australia and lowering your baseline level of vigilance. Exactly, where it all seems a little bit too under control sometimes, <laughs> you know, a little bit too calm. That is possibly why veterans are drawn to places like Africa and several Australians I know of who are involved in the fight against poaching because perhaps you you need, if not that kind of baseline adrenaline or excitement, I think it's more about a sense of purpose. The, one of the great things about Australia is that if I march on Anzac Day, and I get on the bus, people who, who may recognise me because we're, we commute together on my neighbours, they don't know that I've been in the army or in Afghanistan. Military service is not widespread in this country, which is great because it doesn't have to be, you know. We, we are so lucky here. And we don't have gunfire down the road, you know, and we don't, most of us don't live in poverty. We have support networks and things to look after each other, which is fantastic. But I think if you come back 
from a war zone into a society like Australia, it's almost so safe and so orderly, no matter how hard we pretend that it's not, that it's, it's really foreign. It is unsettling how peaceful things are here. You get to Africa, it's a bit more normal. <laughs> and also, from what you're describing with that sense of community, um, it also has that military sense of tribe. Yeah, exactly. Very much so. So you wrote your first of your published novels in 1998, and it was then published by Pam Macmillan, which I have to admit for full disclosure is my employer. It was published by them in 2004. Yeah. So that was finally realising that childhood dream for you. Exactly, yeah. It was amazing how it happened. I'd written a book initially. I left work in 1996 to write a novel, and I wrote a novel that was terrible. It was just awful. I made every mistake a first-time writer could make, and, and I thought, oh, no, I failed at my dream. <laughs> you know. But by then, we were on our third trip back to Africa, and I tried again. did something completely different. The first book, I, I had read textbooks about how to write a book. They said you have to have a plot. You have to know everything about the book, the beginning, middle, and the end, and all the characters before you start. And I did that, and I created a book that was just so predictable, that if you read the first half of the first page, you would know exactly what was going to happen at the end of the book. And more importantly, it was not an enjoyable process. I didn't like knowing the ending to this story that I was writing. So when I wrote my second novel, on an extended trip around Africa, I made it up as I went along. I didn't have a plan. I threw away the rule book and just made it up as I went along. And I enjoyed that. And it must have showed through because I sent it into Pam McMillan. They said, well, we're interested in publishing it, but go away and do some more work on it, which was a bit unusual. And I did. And then by the time I went to Afghanistan, I got an email saying, open this email, it's good news. You know, so I got a deal. And that allowed me to really pursue what was then a very big part of our life, my wife and I going to Africa. I had an excuse to go back and start writing every year. And I did. And I've written a book a year since that first one came out. And you've got to really pursue that love of writing, as you say, your passionate career, because your next book is out in the end of June, Last Survivor. Yeah. Tell me about that. My novels are all mostly contemporary, not all contemporary, and, and they do deal with environmental issues such as poaching and the war on poaching. So I've written in the past about elephants and being killed for their ivory and rhinos for their rhino horns and vultures and things. The problem with the trade in endangered species is not just limited to big critters like rhinos and, and elephants. And it's not just limited to mammals. Birds are involved. I just mentioned I've done a book about vultures being poached for use in traditional medicine. But the, the most endangered living organism on the planet at the moment is a class of cycads plants, spiky plants from South Africa called cycads. They're also common in Australia. And these plants, number one threat is enthusiastic collectors. We take them out of the wild where they belong and flog them off to each other, sell them to each other for amazing amounts of money. It's an incredibly lucrative trade worth millions of dollars. It's all underhanded and it's being perpetuated by your neighbour. You know, it's these are ordinary, good, prosperous, you know, successful people who happen to be fanatical plant collectors. And while obviously the vast majority of plant collectors are honest and only trade in legally sourced plants and those that have been propagated legally, there are people very busy at the moment in South Africa and Swaziland and Zimbabwe and maybe in other countries ripping the last of these plants out of the bush, out of their natural environment and palming them off, pun intended, as propagated plants. And so, yeah, I've written a book about that. And, and if you imagine a bunch of heavily armed grandmas and grandpas <laughs> fighting to protect these endangered plants, that's the premise of the, of the book. And this is your 18th novel? 18th novel, yeah. That's right. Just started work on the 19th. So. 
And you don't just write novels. You also have quite a nonfiction portfolio under your belt. Yeah, I've done half a dozen biographies where I've worked with other people to write their stories. And if, if, if writing novels is my passion, which it is, and my dream, I get to live my dream, then writing nonfiction for me is, is kind of the best day job in the world. That's what I do when I'm not writing novels. And I really enjoy telling other people's stories and, and working with them. And one that you and I are working on, Tony, is the autobiography of Daniel Kieran VC, and you are the writer that's been helping Dan tell his story. Yeah, I think with all due respect to everyone else who I've worked with on nonfiction books, and I think they would probably understand this, is this is probably the most important book that I've worked on, the Dan Kieran story, particularly because it's about his service in Afghanistan. But also when we talked about some of those those things earlier that are quite common in the Australian Defence Force or, or any or a team or any you know large cohesive organisation looking after each other. Here is a guy who won his award for valour for looking after his mates by putting himself at risk and really becoming the personification of those values that so many of us aspire to, the quiet achiever, the man who literally risks his life for other people. And for me, it's been a particularly important book to work on because, as I said, I was quite disillusioned by my experiences in Afghanistan, working in the PR side of things, and then I felt like we weren't able to do our job to fully tell the story of all of the achievements that were done in Afghanistan. This book goes a long way towards rectifying that. And Tony, if anyone wants to jump online and see the leopard in your backyard going through your trash, where can they find you on social media? You can find me all over social media at Tony Park Author on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And uh, my website's www.tonypark.net. And uh, by the way, I've also invested in a safari lodge in Zimbabwe. So if anybody's looking for a good deal on a safari holiday, please contact me. (laughs) Well, I encourage everyone listening to look you up and look up your novels to look up Veterans for Wildlife and see however anyone can contribute to that wonderful cause. And of course, just to follow you and get your social media numbers up because you do post some really cool original content on there. You are quite a storyteller and I know you have plenty more stories to tell. Thank you for coming and sharing yours with me today. Thank you and thanks for having me on the program. This conversation was recorded in the Pam McMillan Audio Studio. Pam McMillan is Tony's publisher and my employer. Look up Tony on social media and get your hands on his awesome novels, especially Last Survivor, out now. Also, be sure to get your hands on Dan Kieran VC's autobiography, Courage Under Fire, coming out 27 October. And listen to my conversation with Dan in Season 3, in Episode 43, Dan Kieran VC. I knew I had to do something. If I didn't, they were going to die. You can find pictures of Tony and other great content on our social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and lest we forget.